Let's open our Bibles once again, actually for the last time, to the little letter of Jude. This is our last study in Jude. We trust that we'll visit this epistle from time to time, but this is our last time studying it consecutively. And I want to read to you verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. What we've, just wor- what we've just read are the closing words of Jude's letter, and they are unlike anything else we have read in this letter. If you've been here from the very beginning of our study, then you certainly know that experientially, because everything we have read in Jude, everything else we have read in Jude, is a description or a denouncement of false teachers, or else some exhortation to help us resist the influence of false teachers, And help others who are caught up in their errors. But these last two verses are just pure praise directed to God. And this particular type of praise, as I mentioned last week, is what is commonly known as a doxology. A doxology. Doxology is a word that comes from a Greek word, doxa, which means glory. That's what the word means, glory, because a doxology is an acknowledgement of God's glory, God's glorious attributes. So we call it a doxology. Actually, it was very common in ancient times for Jewish people to conclude their prayers or sermons with a, dox- with a doxology, which is probably why, probably why a number of New Testament writers being Jewish conclude either their letters or a major section of their letters with a doxology. For example, the Apostle Paul does this, and let me show you a few doxologies. You have read these, I'm sure, but maybe didn't recognize that this is a doxology. The end of Romans, the last few verses in Romans, Romans chapter 16. The Apostle Paul has finished his letter And he comes to the end of Romans and he just praises the Lord, starting with verse 25. Now, to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandments of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith to the only wise God through Jesus Christ be the glory forever. Amen. That's it's a rather long doxology, but that is technically a doxology. It is praise unto God. Then a very well-known statement in Paul's letter to the Ephesians is also a doxology. Ephesians chapter 3 Verses 20 and 21, where Paul says, now to him, notice the number of times it goes now to him. That's a doxology. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. That is a doxology. Philippians chapter 4, verse 20, a very brief doxology. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. 
First Timothy, I don't need to read this, but chapter 6, verses 15 and 16, also a doxology. Paul's not the only one to do this. Peter does this. Two times, Peter in his two letters has a doxology for us. First Peter 5:11, to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Second Peter 3:18, to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So these are a sampling of other New Testament doxologies. But of all the doxologies found in the New Testament, it is Jude's doxology found here in verses 24 and 25 that is considered by many students of the Bible to be the most thrilling of all doxologies because Jude's doxology addresses a very specific issue that is most comforting for believers in Christ. See, Jude's doxology gives specific praise an adoration to God for his ability, his power to protect us from ever forsaking Jesus Christ and becoming an apostate. That is a thrilling truth for us because it is a truth of assurance, it is a truth of comfort. But it had to be particularly exhilarating for Jude's original readers to hear because His letter is centered around the great danger that they faced because false teachers, apostates, people who had abandoned the faith, had come into their church and were threatening them, threatening them with error, threatening them with a deviant lifestyle. Notice once again, and for the last time, Jude, verses 3 and 4, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity, as you know he means he felt compelled by the Holy Spirit, to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once and for all handed down to the saints. Now, in saying that, he has thrust them out into the battle. You are to contend, you are to fight for the faith, the faith that was once and for all given to God's people. There is no more faith, that's it. The body of New Testament truth, the gospel. And then he tells them in verse 4, why? For certain people, certain persons have crept in unnoticed. They've crept into your church. Or perhaps it might have been a few churches. They've crept into your church unnoticed. Those who have long beforehand been marked out for this condemnation. That is to say, God wrote about this. God spoke about this. This has not taken him by surprise. But they are ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. This was a church that was threatened by these men. And they targeted Christians. They wanted them to follow their theological error and also to follow their licentious lifestyle. In fact, just before this doxology, as you know, Jude commands his readers to try to rescue certain people. Those who are wavering, wavering in an understanding of biblical Christianity or else they may have already committed themselves to false teaching. And he he tells us to rescue them. Verses 22 and 23. Have mercy on some who are doubting. These are either weak believers or maybe not believers at all, but they're having doubts about biblical Christianity. Rescue them. Have mercy on them. Talk tenderly to them. Be sensitive to them. They're doubting. Don't be too aggressive with these people, but help them. 
Save others, verse 23, snatching them out of the fire. These are folks who have already gone over to the other side. With these folks, you don't have to be terribly tactful. These folks, you get aggressive. They're like people burning in a building. Don't suggest that they might come out. Be bold and just aggressively go get them. You don't have to be very sensitive in telling them if you don't repent, you're going to hell. Third, he says, and there's another type of person who's gone over to the other side. And on some, he says, have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. These are people who are so entrenched in error and false teaching and cults and false religious systems that with these folks, you've got to be cautious lest you get burned yourself. You've got to be careful with these folks. You've, you've got to be careful about your own spiritual lives. Don't get too caught up in this. Try to help them, but don't get too close to the flames yourself. So, There are dangers, and Judah's written all throughout his letter about these men and the dangers they they pose. But in spite of how dangerous things are, we know that we will never permanently abandon, no true believer will ever permanently abandon Jesus Christ and the gospel for the lies of false teaching. And we know this because Jude praises God for keeping us, which means he protects us. Now, as we discovered last week, the basic structure of this doxology is that Jude first tells us why we should give praise to God because he says in verse 24, he is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy. Then Jude, having said that specifically, identifies the one to whom we are to give our praise as to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And finally, Jude tells us that we should praise God for having the magnificent attributes of glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time. He's always had this. He has these attributes now, and he will forever have these attributes. Now, that is the basic flow, folks, of the doxology. But as we said last week, the precious truths that are found in this praise really can't be reduced and neatly packaged in in just a simple outline to, to follow. Because these words, when we grasp them, are spiritually breathtaking. Absolutely breathtaking as they reveal truths about God that will cause you to fall upon your knees and adore him. And so tonight, while not straying from the basic structure of these two verses, we want the magnificence of the Lord to grip us, which is really the intent of this doxology. And this will happen as we see Jude giving us three basic reasons for praising God. Why should we praise God? Last week, we looked at the first reason for praising him. And I want to I want to remind you and go deeper on on this. I realize that many were not here last week. It was, I believe, Mother's Day. And so uh, I want to just make sure that we cover this. We praise him, number one, because he has the ability to keep us from falling. Verse 24 starts off now to him who is able to him who is able. Jude begins his doxology by directing our attention to God's ability. Even before he identifies who we are praising, he'll do that in verse 25 when he says, to the only God, our our Savior. But here, he simply tells us that the one we praise is able, meaning he's capable, meaning he's omnipotent, he's all-powerful. And what is he able to do that we should give him 
our praise. He is able to keep you from stumbling or falling. Now, as we noted last week, Jude is not saying that God will keep us from ever stumbling and falling into sin. That's not what he's saying. That would contradict other scriptures. That's not what he's saying. We, we do sin. We all sin. Every believer is in the process of being sanctified. It's called progressive sanctification. None of us has arrived. Even the Apostle Paul said, I have not attained it. And he said in Romans chapter 7 that he struggles with sin like everybody else. He called himself the chief of sinners. So we all sin. We're all in the process of being sanctified. And sinless perfection will never be achieved in this lifetime. It will be when we are in the presence of Christ. And only then. So what Jude is is saying is that God keeps us in the sense of protecting us from falling into apostasy. That's the context. That's exactly what he's saying. In other words, in spite of all the theological errors and minefields that we are exposed to on a regular basis, if you are a genuine Christian, you will never permanently walk away from Jesus Christ and reject the gospel for a false religious system. And the reason that you will never reject Christ is because God is keeping you. That's why we praise him. That is to say, you are being kept, as Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 5, kept by the power of God. You are not kept by your own power. You are not kept by your own strength. This is a tremendous truth, and and it's here because it's to evoke great praise and adoration towards God. Because what this tells us is that the only reason that you and I are not only saved, but are still saved and haven't lost our salvation is because the Lord is keeping you saved. That's the only reason. If it were up to us, we would have abandoned Christ. Understand this. We would have abandoned Christ a long time ago. I'll never forget reading what Spurgeon said. Spurgeon said, listen, if you could, if you could lose your salvation, I would have lost it. Almost right after I was saved. I think most of us would have said that. Should say that if we're honest. But it's not up to us. We are kept by the power of God. And it's not because, as I said a moment ago, we're so spiritual or we have such insight or we're strong. It's only because the Lord keeps us from falling. And so we praise him and we recognize his strength and his mercy in our lives. And you know what? The scriptures consistently give credit to God and not to us, but God and his power in keeping us, not ourselves. Let me show you this. This is just reinforcement. John chapter 10. All the scriptures that speak of assurance speak of, well, I should say many of them speak of specifically him holding on to us. John chapter 10. We're not holding on to the Lord. He's holding on to us. He's the one who keeps us from falling. John chapter 10, that great statement, which I think is the very clearest statement on the assurance of salvation and the fact that we will never lose our salvation, eternal security. John chapter 10, starting at verse 27. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Not they might follow. They do follow me. And I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. Now, I don't know how Jesus could have said it any clearer than that. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now, notice he's holding on to us. We're not gripping him. If it was us gripping him, we would have let go a long time ago when things got rough. But he's holding on to us. And notice, not only is he holding on to us, verse 29 tells us that the Father is holding on to us. 
My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. So we don't simply believe in eternal security. We believe in double eternal security. You're in the hands of Christ. You're in the hands of the father. Another verse, John 6, 39. John chapter 6, verse 39. Jesus said, this is the will of him who sent me. That of all that he has given me, meaning believers, he's talking about, I lose nothing. Meaning I lose no one, but raise it up on the last day. He's talking about individuals. All that the Father gives to him, he said, will come to him. He'll never let us go. And here he's saying, I lose nothing. I lose not one person. Look at John chapter 17. This is the high priestly prayer. Of our Lord, John chapter 17, notice verses 11 and 12. Jesus is praying. This is really the true Lord's prayer. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name. Keep them in your name. The name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. No one was lost, Father, that you gave to me, except Judas, because he never belonged anyway. And now he says, I entrust them to you. Now you keep them. Christ's prayer is always answered, always answered. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that very famous verse, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He's the one who does it. He's the one who will keep doing it. Now, we need to keep in mind, to balance this, that this does not mean that a Christian will never be confused over some doctrine. Jude is not saying that we'll always have clear thinking. Sometimes believers, true believers, are confused about cultic theology, false religion. And sometimes true believers might temporarily embrace some serious, erroneous theology. Jude is also not saying that we will never be tempted to embrace some deviant behavior. Believers at times have done that. But what Jude is saying is you will never, a true believer will never ultimately and permanently reject Jesus Christ and the gospel. You cannot. Why? Because the Lord is holding you and keeping you from falling by his power. That's the praise. Therefore, folks, you and I can contend for the faith with great boldness, even if we engage in an evangelistic conversation with someone who is caught up In a false religious system. You don't ever need to fear that if you speak to them, they might win you over to their persuasion, their theological persuasion. That won't happen. That won't happen. Why? Because God is the one who is keeping you from falling away. Do you see why Jude closed his letter like this? These poor readers original readers they they didn't have the wealth of of knowledge that we have i don't know what they knew of all the new testament truths they needed to hear this it is because the lord is able to keep you from falling away from him that we read in the very next phrase that jude gives us that he will 
make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. What a truth to praise God for. He is so powerful in keeping you saved that he assures us that someday we will make it. We will stand in his presence, his glorious presence, completely blameless. He is keeping us so that we'll never fall away. But when we die or are raptured, we will be in his presence. In other words, every Christian is going to make it to glory. Every true Christian is going to stand in God's holy presence with the most exhilarating joy you have ever experienced. And the only reason that we as sinners will be able to do this is because of God's grace in imputing Christ's righteousness to us. There will be no sinful stain on our records. Only his righteousness credited to our account. And standing in his presence is precisely what Jesus prayed for in his high priestly prayer to the Father. Let's go back to John 17 for a moment and let me show you this. I said this is, his prayers are always answered, always prayed in the will of God. John chapter 17, notice verse 24. This is the answer. Father, he said, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory, which you have given me for you love me before the foundation of the world. That prayer will be answered for every believer. We will be in the presence of Christ and we will see him in his full glory. That'll become reality at either the rapture of the church or when we die. Listen, these are the kinds of truths that that need to fill our minds and we need to to dwell on this and meditate on these truths as we think about navigating our our way through this corrupt and, and very sinful world. John Newton was right, the man who wrote Amazing Grace. Through many dangers, toils and snares, he said, I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far. And grace will lead me home. So regardless of the personal difficulties that you're presently facing or what you will face in the future, be assured that you will be brought home to stand in the very presence of God himself. And you'll do it with joy because of his mercy and grace in Christ. So having told us that we should praise God because of his power to keep us from falling, Jude gives us now a second reason to praise God, and that is we praise God because He is our Savior. Verse 25. To the only God, our Savior. Now, with these words, Jude identifies the one that we are to praise, the one who is able to keep us from falling and presents us blameless in His glorious presence. He first tells us that He is the only God, which is a statement that some of us may may take for granted because you might think, well, of course, there is only one God. But remember, in Jude's day, the Gentiles, they worship many gods, many gods. Yet Jude states that there is only one God and he is to be worshipped. No one else. Now, I would assume that most non-Christians that we know, at least in this country, would say that they believe that there is only one God. 
And they would say they believe that there is a supreme being. We would uh, probably agree we are all monotheists, believing that there is only one God, one supreme being. But oftentimes, they will use their belief in monotheism, one, one God, to try to minimize and even dismiss the gospel, saying that it's really not important if we have some differences in theology, because after all, we all believe in the same God. Well, we need to understand that we all don't believe in the same God, even if we are monotheists. Let me explain. For someone to not believe in the God of Scripture, the God who has revealed himself in Scripture and in the person and work of Jesus Christ, means that they do not believe in the one true God. If they do not believe in the God of Scripture, what he's revealed about himself, they do not believe in the one true God. Let me put it to you this way. Allah is not just another name of the one God. Allah is not just another name that Muslims call the one God. They think that, but that's not the case. And a God who doesn't punish anyone in hell because he's just and holy is not the same God that Jude is speaking of. And those Jewish people who reject Jesus Christ but say they believe in God do not believe in the one God that Jude is writing about. All of these people who profess to believe in the same God as you and I do may believe, as I said, in one supreme being, but this is a supreme being that they have created in their own minds to fit their own theology. Notice that when Jude offers his praise to God, he offers it to not only the one God, but notice what he says, or the only God. He says, the only God, our Savior. Our Savior. That is to say that the only God is our Savior because He is the one who delivers us from the penalty of our sins. See, unlike the gods that men invent, the one true God is by His very nature a compassionate Savior because He delivers those who are weak and sinful. And He saves us, notice the next phrase, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, there is salvation in none other but Jesus Christ, our Lord. See, this is the distinctive message of biblical Christianity, that we are saved only by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and his atoning work on the cross. Apart from Jesus Christ, there is no salvation, regardless of whether a person believes in God or not. There is no salvation. A God that they say they believe in, I'm saying. Because it is only through his death that our sins are paid for. He, he said himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There is no other way to be saved. And Peter said to the Sanhedrin in Acts 4:12, There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men whereby we must be saved. But I want to show you a verse that you may not be familiar with. 1 John chapter 5 1 John chapter 5 and verse 20. Notice what John says, how he ends his letter. Next to last verse of the closing of 1 John. He said, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. Watch this. And we are in him who is true in 
his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. This is the true God. Jesus Christ is the true God and eternal life. You cannot say, I believe in God, but I don't believe in Jesus Christ. Then you don't believe in the true God. Listen, we need to be careful as we study this little doxology that we don't get so caught up in the details that we lose sight of what the primary message is here. It's important to look at the details, otherwise we won't get the primary message. But we need to be sure that we don't lose sight that the primary point that Jude is making is that we are to praise and adore God for himself because he is our Savior. He is our Savior. Do you ever do that? Do you ever just praise and thank God for saving your soul? I don't mean just in church. I mean, do you ever just worship him in the mornings when you get up? You open your Bible. I hope you do that. Spend time in prayer and praise. Do you ever just thank him for saving you and keeping you for all of eternity? That's what God wants. That's what he delights in. I'm convinced that the more we understand that our salvation is all of God's grace and has nothing to do with us, the deeper and greater will be our gratitude and praise. Let me show you. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Someone just asked me this morning how I would help a child understand Calvinism. I was going to say good luck, but, um, you know, that's a joke. Calvin, you don't believe in luck. But anyway. All right. But what I did say was Ephesians chapter 1 is very helpful. I suggested that uh, this individual get some uh, messages that years ago I, I did on Ephesians 1. But Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3, going all the way to verse 4, is one run-on sentence in the Greek text. And it is the Apostle Paul explaining to the Ephesians that our salvation is attributed solely to God's sovereign work in our lives. I'm not going to read all of it to you, but I just want to give you a glimpse of it and then show you where Paul is going with this. He says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, how did we get there? How do we get all these blessings? Verse 4, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Notice he chose us. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. Notice that it all our salvation all goes back to God. He chose us. He predestined us. We're in him now. And then notice what Paul says in verse 6. Why did God do this? To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on upon us in the Beloved. Why do we praise God? Because we understand that salvation is solely of God. But I'm not going to read any more of this whole passage except to take you to verses 12 and 14 where Paul is going on and on. We have redemption, all that. We have forgiveness of our sins. Then he says in verse 12, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Verse 14. Speaking of the Holy Spirit who has given us as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, meaning the final aspect of our salvation, to the praise of his glory. Paul, in this one long run-on sentence, says three times that God 
has given us salvation. It all is attributed to his sovereign grace in our lives so that we would praise him for his glory and praise him for his grace. So I contend that the more we understand of God's sovereignty in saving us and the more we understand how unable we were and are to do anything about our salvation, the more you will fall on your face and say, praise God for saving me. That's the whole point. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. If salvation were any part of us, and I realize we have human responsibility, but God is, is the one even mysteriously who grants us the faith and repentance to believe. But when you realize that it all is of God, you don't boast. Not in yourself, you boast in Him. So we are to praise Him. We are to praise Him. So Jude has told us that our praise is to, is to be directed towards God because, number one, He is able to keep us from falling. Number two, because He is our Savior. But now with the final words of his doxology, Jude tells us that we are to worship and praise the only God, our Savior, because he's worthy of our praise. Notice the rest of verse 25. Be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. With these words, Jude ascribes four attributes to God that are unique. No one else has these attributes. Now he's talking about the triune Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. No one else possesses these attributes because no one else is like God since he is the only God. And frankly, though I will comment briefly on each of these attributes, they are beyond human comprehension. We can maybe understand a little bit, but beyond complete human comprehension, Jude describes God our Savior as, number one, having glory. Glory essentially means the sum total of all that God is and all that he does. To speak of, of God as having glory is to speak of the radiant outshining of his infinite excellencies. So that when we say we want to glorify God, we mean we want to put him on display for others to see his excellency. So when you think of glory, probably a good word would be his excellencies. It's the sum total of who God is. Jude says that God, our Savior, also has majesty. Essentially, majesty means greatness. It means magnificence. See, only the one true God, not Allah, but the one true God is great. The war cry of the Muslim world is God is, is great. But it is God, our Savior, who is great through Jesus Christ, our Lord. A number of years ago, I was witnessing to a man, a friend of mine. We were having lunch together. And he said, I'll tell you what bothers me about the gospel. It bothers me that God wants to be so praised. And what he was saying is he was accusing God of sinful egotism. Why is it that he should get all this glory, that he should get all this praise. And I tried to explain to him that God is the only one worthy of praise. He was trying to equate that, oh, it's wrong for us to put ourselves on the pedestal and, 
and want to be worshipped and praised. But it's not wrong for God. He was saying, isn't that too standard, too uh, double standard? No, because we're sinners. There's nothing to praise us about. We're unworthy. But God really is worthy of praise and worship. He's worthy of praise. He is the only one who is truly great. There is no flaw in him. He has every right to say, it is all about me. It's not about you. It's all about me because I'm the only one who's really great, intrinsically great. He didn't acquire greatness. He is great. Third, Jude says that God our Savior has the attribute of dominion. This is referring to God's absolute sovereign power and rulership over all things. That is what dominion means. He controls all things. He directs all things and always brings about the good pleasure of his decreed will. Listen, if God does not possess dominion, then he is not God. He is sovereign. John Calvin did not invent the doctrine of God's sovereignty. He merely recognized that this is what scripture teaches And he applied it specifically to the truth of our salvation. God has dominion. Fourth and finally, God has the attribute of authority. Now, authority is related to dominion, but it is different. It's not the same thing. Dominion means that he is all-powerful, but authority means, means that he has the right to use his power. Dominion means he is all-powerful, but authority means he has the right to use that power. In other words, he not only has all power, but he has the right to exercise his power to accomplish whatever he wants to accomplish. He doesn't have to ask permission from anybody. He has all authority. As one writer put it so well, it is his prerogative to direct and use all things in harmony with his divine purpose. Listen, the reason that you and I should praise God continuously is because he is the only one who is worthy of our adoration. Since he is the only one in all the universe who has glory and majesty and dominion and authority. And you know what? He has always had these attributes. Always. There's never been a time, nor will there ever be a time when God has not or will not have these attributes. That's why Jude closes his letter with these words, before all time, meaning he has always had these attributes. You think back to eternity past, there was never a beginning for God. He always had these attributes. And now, at the present time, he has these attributes. And forever, he will always have These attributes, it's sort of like what the writer to the Hebrews said, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then Jude closes with amen, which means he affirms this. I think the only fitting way to close our study of Jude is to spend some time, I will lead us, but you privately, quietly praising this one who keeps us from falling, who is the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and possesses attributes that no one else I think it would delight the Lord for us to just praise him in our hearts as we lift up adoration to him. I'll give you a few moments. You can I'll be quiet and then I'll lead us in prayer and praise. Lord, there there is no one else like you. 
There is no one worthy of our praise and adoration. We thank you. We thank you for saving us, Lord, and keeping us saved. We thank you that for reasons known only to you, you chose us in Christ in eternity past. And not because we were better than others. We're all just dust. But you have chosen your bride, and we sovereignly acknowledge that. We acknowledge your sovereignty. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you keep us from falling. For if it were up to us, we would have long ago abandoned Christ. Even as we sang that great hymn tonight, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Far from the God I love. But thank you for keeping us. Thank you that you're holding on to us. All the temptations in life, all the erroneous theologies out there, and yet you keep us clinging to the gospel. We acknowledge and affirm and adore you for it. Lord, we thank you that you are our Savior, that you are the only God, our Savior. You have revealed yourself to us in Christ, and we are grateful for that. We praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, for his death on the cross on our behalf. And Lord, we praise you that you have such glory, such magnificence, such power, such authority, you do whatever you choose to do. And who are we to question that? Lord, you are the excellent one. You are the magnificent one. And you have always been magnificent. You have always been so excellent. And we thank you that you have included us in your plan We thank you that we've been brought into the family, Lord, for once we were excluded, but now we have been brought into your family. We thank you for that. We thank you for this letter that you inspired Jude to write. And Lord, even though we close the book on Sunday nights to Jude, may our hearts always be open to the truths that we heard. May we walk through this world being mindful of doctrines of demons Mindful of apostasy, but most mindful of you. May we contend for the faith. May we do battle, Lord, as sometimes uncomfortable as that is, to never budge from the essentials of the gospel. All of this we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.